Washington, D.C. is a wonderful place to be these days if you consider the beautiful weather and the first hint of the leaves changing into their full fall foliage display. But if you look at the politics of Washington, D.C., there's another picture that starts to quickly emerge. As the nights turn cool, there's a growing chill in the political air, if that's not too obvious a metaphor to use. Hints of bipartisanship that show early signs of offering solutions to some of the most vexing problems facing the government seem to be quickly snuffed out. The rhetoric from the White House is increasingly aggressively hostile toward those who disagree with the politics that they try to move forward. There are weekly, daily, even hourly crises that by and large seem to be self-made by the current administration. For example, just this week there was Trump's phone call to the pregnant widow of a fallen soldier during which Congresswoman Frederica Wilson and the soldier's mother both reported that Trump made inappropriate remarks. Trump in tweets and at press conferences argued that he had acted properly. Then General Kelly, White House Chief of Staff, came to the president's defense and the controversy continued for days. Trump's tepid response to the devastation in Puerto Rico caused by Hurricane Irma continues. And while progress has been made, still, nearly 80% of people in Puerto Rico do not have electricity and about a million residents are still without clean drinking water. In the face of these statistics, Trump graded himself a perfect 10 out of 10 for the response to Hurricane Irma. The mayor of San Juan disagreed with that self-assessment. Well, if it is a 10 out of a scale of 100, of course, it is still a failing grade. Um, FEMA uh, personnel has admitted that they don't have the generators that are needed to provide to hospitals. So hospitals are, are still running on inappropriate generators, even though FEMA had mentioned that the generators would be here. Um, FEMA representatives have admitted that they really haven't been able to canvas all, uh, most of just, just less than 2% of the people that have lost their roofs in their homes. FEMA administrators have admitted that they're still in, in a recovery side and they, even though they have stepped out their game, and I have to say that in the last week they have stepped out their game, it still isn't enough. Uh, Three-star General Buchanan and Michael Burns have said we haven't done what we have set out to accomplish. So I think the president lives in an alternative uh, reality world that only he believes the things that he's saying. And amid all this controversy, Washington, D.C. struggles through legislative efforts. It's been 10 months since Trump took office. The Republicans hold the Oval Office, the House and the Senate, and yet they have not been able to pass one piece of significant legislation. Trump has turned to the power of the pen, as it's called, which means that he's moved his agenda forward by executive order rather than by the normal legislative process of introducing bills into the Congress, having committees formed to develop the structure of those bills, holding public hearings to include the citizens of the United States in the debate, bringing them to the floor of the House and to the Senate for votes, and then to the Oval Office for signature. 
That's the way things are supposed to work in our government, but that doesn't seem to be the case these days. And in the shadow of this failure by the Republicans to legislate, there's a palpable desperation to get something done before year-end, and in the run-up to the 2018 midterm elections, it could be disastrous for Republicans if they continue to be ineffective in their efforts to run the government. This is why tax reform is so desperately critical to Republicans. It's on the list of things that they promised in their last election, which includes repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act, haven't done that, implementing a travel ban into the United States from Muslim-majority nations, haven't done that, tearing up NAFTA, haven't done that, getting the government of Mexico to pay for the Mexico border wall, haven't done that. The list goes on. And that's why getting tax reform through is so critical to the future of the Trump administration. This well may be the last chance that Trump supporters will give him to get something done. And if he fails, his historically low 35% approval rating will almost certainly fall further. Now, the Senate did take an important step toward tax reform this week when they passed by a razor-thin vote of 51 to 49, a budget blueprint that would protect a $1.5 trillion tax cut from a Democratic filibuster. One of the ways they plan to fund this massive tax cut is through opening up the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in Alaska to oil exploration. The House will now try to pass the Senate's budget resolution, but if there are changes the House wants to make, that could delay the process and spell trouble for the Republicans. And already there are whispers of concerns from certain Republicans that Trump's self-given label as the, quote, king of debt could mean that the $1.5 trillion tax cut could significantly increase the national deficit and start an inflationary cycle that could lead the country into recession. Now, the argument in favor of tax reform is that tax cuts will make the economy grow and the deficit will be erased by collection of more revenue by the government based on this increased growth. But that's an awfully big bet, and many leading economists have their doubts. Tax reform has been largely developed behind closed doors by a small group of Republicans, so many of the details of the plan remain unclear. And with large programs such as tax reform, the devil is always in the details. As those details emerge in the coming weeks and coming days, we'll devote a podcast to tax reform, and in keeping with the theme of this podcast, we'll try to make a very complex issue simple. The other issue that is very much in the forefront of discussion in Washington, D.C. is health care. As we know, Republicans were unable to pass new health care legislation, thereby reneging on their promise to voters to repeal and replace Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. So now they seem to be turning to efforts again through the power of the pen to slowly dismantle, some say undermine, Obamacare. Trump has said that he will not pay cost-sharing subsidy reimbursements for insurance companies. 
these payments from the federal government to health insurance companies are meant to cover some of the costs of health care for lower-income Americans. Without those monies, health insurance premiums are sure to rise in 2017, 2018, and beyond. And Trump has also cut funding for efforts to get Americans to sign up for the Affordable Care Act, for Obamacare, thereby reducing the number of participants and severely weakening the program. There was a bipartisan effort to fund the cost-sharing subsidies which Trump supported for 24 hours before reversing his direction. And, and all of this uncertainty makes the future of health care in the United States very confusing. So let's continue the last in our three-part series looking at how other developed nations have approached health care for their citizens. We've looked at England and we've looked at Germany. So now let's turn our sights to our neighbors to the north and let's look at the Canadian health care system. Does it work for its citizens? Does it not work for its citizens? But let's first understand a little bit about the Canadian health care system. In order to understand the Canadian healthcare system, you first have to know just a little bit about the geography of the country. Canada is made up of 10 provinces and three territories, which are not unlike the individual states within the United States. They're under the purview of the federal government, but each operates somewhat independently. This results in small differences in how each Canadian province administers and delivers health care to its residents. Health care in Canada works through a publicly funded health care system, which is informally called Medicare. It is mostly free at the point of use and has most services provided by private entities. Canadians are guaranteed access to hospital and physician services, and it's up to each province to decide whether to cover what are called supplementary benefits, which are things like dental care and drug coverage. About two-thirds of Canadians take out private insurance to cover these supplemental benefits, or they have that private insurance through their employer. The structure of the current Canadian healthcare system can be traced back to 1947 in the province of Saskatchewan which offered near-universal medical care to its residences. This approach gradually expanded into other provinces and culminated in the Canada Health Care Act of 1983, which was introduced under Pierre Trudeau, who, interestingly, was the father of the current Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. The consistency of health care within each of the provinces of Canada is achieved by the federal government, which will only pay to the provinces monies to cover their residents if they adhere to the five main principles of the Canada Health Care Act. And those principles are, number one, public administration. All administration of provincial health care insurance must be carried out by public authority on a non-profit basis. And that's a very important point to understand in the difference between Canadian health care and health care in the United States. Canada is based on a not-for-profit system, and in the U.S. it's based on a for-profit system. The number two principle, comprehensiveness. All necessary health services, including hospitals, physicians, and surgical dentistry, must be insured. Number three principle, universality. All insured residents are entitled to the same level of health care regardless of income, 
where they live, their age, their gender, etc. Number four principle, portability. If you move to a different territory within Canada or a different province, or you move outside of Canada, you're still covered. Number five principle, accessibility. All insured persons have reasonable access to health care facilities within Canada. So those are the basics of the Canadian health care system. A publicly managed, not-for-profit system delivered privately, which guarantees free health care for all Canadian citizens. But what's it like to live under the Canadian healthcare system? Well, I gave my friend Brian a call in Canada to find out. Brian Markinson is married, and Brian has two kids. He lives in Vancouver, Canada, and he's an actor. Brian is in a unique position to examine the Canadian healthcare system because he holds dual U.S. Canadian citizenship. He grew up in the U.S. before moving to Canada as a young adult. So he's experienced both healthcare systems. Good morning. Good morning. It's Matthew, Brian. How are you? Keith, man, how are you? Is this still a good time? You bet. So one of the things that, uh, one of the issues that is going on in Washington, D.C. now is the, um, is healthcare. And, uh, right. and and a discussion about health care and, you know, repealing, replacing Obamacare and, and that even though the Republicans hold the Oval Office, the Senate and the House of Representatives, they can't seem to get no. together enough to, to, to pass, you know, a repeal and replace package. The latest thing was um, Graham Collins, which failed. And, and, um, and meanwhile, the Democrats led by Bernie Sanders have <clears throat> put together a, a proposal, and I don't know how it's going to go through the legislative process, but it's called Medicare for All, and uh, it has 16 co-sponsors. And and so I thought it would be really interesting to do a series. This will be the third in the series looking at other countries, industrialized nations around the world that have single-payer systems of one sort or another. Because as you know, Americans have this great fear of single-payer um, that... You know that there are going to be long lines, and you won't get access to care, and uh, people have to tell you which doctor you have to go to, and all that. And I thought, you know what? Let's let's look. So I thought it'd be great to talk about Canada. So that's kind of how we got got to today. So yeah. so let, let, so let me ask you a few questions, if I may. So first of all, Brian, you personally are are you Canadian? Are you an American living in Canada, or are you a former American living citizen? In now Canadian I, I am I am actually a dual citizen. My status is, has uh, became a citizen here in 2010. Um, I was just slow in, in you know I just dragged my feet about it, but it was mainly just procrastination. But I, so but so I, I actually hold two passports. Okay, and so and as a dual citizen in Canada, are you? eligible or covered under the Canadian healthcare system? The MSP, yes. Uh, medical services plan, which uh, uh, in a family plan, right, uh, uh, as are the kids now as well still. Okay. So can you just tell, just give me an overview of the Canadian healthcare system, how it, how it works and your experience in it? Well, you know, it, it's, it, it's diverse in... in Depending on where you are, and provincially, the, the sort of single payer system uh, it, it's set up in different ways. Uh, but 
in in uh, in BC where I live. Um, depending on what your salary is, uh, your 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 premiums are set uh, that way, and. You know, uh, as a family, I think we pay one hundred and fifty dollars a month. As a as a family, that's it. And you can choose to pay monthly, or you can choose to pay the premium up front. I think the cutoff is forty two thousand dollars a year, and at that point, you don't pay anything. But we are. Um, I'm in the top uh, bracket, and so that's it for me. One hundred and fifty bucks. Okay, and uh, and and, and who yeah. do you who do you who do you pay that to? Is it do you? Well, it's it's to the federal government, but it's you. It's called the it's the medical service plan, uh, and I think it is it is managed by the, the the government of BC, the provincial government here. So that's who I'm paying. And, and so, is that something you pay, or is it taken out of your paycheck? We pay. We we get a, a a statement at the end of uh, the year, and and it tells us, you know, what it is we owe, and uh, we're and and we pay it that way. I mean, I think you can probably have direct um, withdrawal set up, but we just choose to to write a check. And my my understanding is there are, I believe, ten provinces within Canada, and. Each one of those provinces, British Columbia, where you and your family live, is one province. They, each province can set up health care how they choose so long as they adhere to the principles that are set up by the federal Canadian government. And the sort of the stick there is that if they don't, if provinces don't stick to those principles, the federal government has the option to withhold some payments to them to offset the cost of uh, providing health care to the um, citizens of their providence. That that's the way. That's it, correct. Yeah. Okay. That, that you, you you've got it right on that on the head. Yeah. Yep. yep. So so in British Columbia, it may the um, again the same principles which are I think actually were passed by the. Uh, Modern healthcare policy was passed by the current prime minister's father, Pierre Trudeau. Mm-hmm. Pierre Trudeau. Yep. Sorry. Yep. And uh, uh, so the the healthcare, how it's actually delivered, and some of the nuances of it in British Columbia may be a little bit different than in Saskatchewan than or in other provinces, right? That that's correct. I mean, it, it is it is left to there's a, there's a, uh, 11 provinces and, and 11 got it and each one has you know has their own way of, of setting it up you you have it exactly right yep yep and then so in so you you pay about 150 canadian dollars a month or so for your health care for nancy's health care for your two boys health care and uh, and so so what's the experience like in Canada? Let, let's let's say you have something that's bothering you, not a serious condition, but, you know, one of your boys has a sore throat or something like that. How, how does that sort of work in Canada, going and seeing a doctor? Well, first off, we have our own family doctor, GP, um, and, and who, who acts 
as a, a hub for everything that specializes. So let's say I want to see a dermatologist. I don't, I don't just call up a dermatologist and say, you know, I want you to look at this mole on my back. Um, I go through my GP and he will examine me and then he from there will make, uh, will, will make a recommendation and, and then he, it will, it will all happen through, through him. And then, uh, then I will get a ring from the, uh, you know, the dermatologist at a, at a certain point and, and then he will set up an appointment, but it's all, it's all referral based. Gotcha. So, so um, you, so your pri- and is it called your primary care? Is that what it's called in Canada? Yeah. Well, yeah. Primary care, the primary care, I guess they, they use lots. I mean, but yeah, our, prim- our primary care physician, I guess would be, um, how we refer to it. And, you know, for me, the you know, it, it, it's triage up here, right? It, it's based on in terms of the weights, and maybe I should. Am I getting ahead of myself right now, or should I? No, no, go for it, go for it. Okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, what I love about the the system up here, what I love about it, it, it can be frustrating at times. Um, and I can also I can tell you a little anecdote. Um, it's all based on triage, right? I mean. Everybody gets healthcare. Nobody is denied. Um, but in terms of the day-to-day things that, that we as Americans take for granted, uh, i.e., uh, I, I was up skiing. I fell. I had a, started feeling weird, went to my doctor. He says, you, you have at least one hernia. He referred me to, to the specialist, which took, you know, I think I got in within a few weeks. He checked it. He said, yeah, you definitely have a hernia. He said, uh, we're looking probably at four to five months before surgery. I called up my uh, my doctor in Los Angeles. He said, how's Wednesday? You know, <laughs> so that's kind of, that's the difference. Uh, but if you, if you have something life-threatening, um, you are moved to the front of the line. And, uh, so I feel that's fair and I feel that it's a, it's a, it's fair and I'm, I'm willing, I'm willing to, to go through those sort of, those little, those weights and those small frustrations in the name of, uh, healthcare for everybody. Um, I'm willing to pay, you know, my taxes knowing that. Um, it's, it's in the name of, you know, healthcare for all. I, I always believe there's certain things that should be, should be socialized and education and, and healthcare are, are, are at the top of that list. I was looking at, um, the sort of the, 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 the principles of the Canadian healthcare system, which are, um, uh, the primary objective is, quote, to protect, promote, and restore the physical and mental well-being of residents of Canada and to facilitate reasonable access to health care services without financial or other barriers. It, 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 it sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's simple. 
and 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 the, and the five principles of the Canadian actor—they're all simple, and and uh, it makes sense. That this is what is so frustrating to me. I live in this beautiful little bubble up here, even as a as an American citizen uh, and an expat in a in a sense. And 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 it's what's so frustrating to me is that it really is simple. Yes, I mean we have thirty seven million people up here. And, and you're 350 million or whatever it is now. Um, it it's big, but it does work. It does work. You know, people people we pay high taxes up here. We pay higher taxes uh, than than our neighbors to the south. And and everybody, you know, we we can complain about it at times. For certain reasons, but not there. There's nobody who would trade it. You know, it but, just makes sense. But it's and it works. And but and it's also what I don't know how else to put this, but what you get for your taxes. I mean, here exactly. You know, here obviously, you know, you pay into Social Security. You know, in, into kind of social programs, right? You you pay into Social Security. And you pay um, Medicare and, and Medicaid tax, but um, so it, so there's a form of it here. But the fact remains is that for about forty to forty five percent of people in the United States who aren't covered under their employer, don't have their health insurance covered under their employer, they right. they have to pay additional um, out of their pocket for for um, health insurance. And I can tell you that personally. I pay a heck of a lot more than $150 a month. And, yeah, um, sure, yeah, so it's, so it's, it's, you know, it's, it depends upon which pocket it's coming out of, but it's still coming out of one pocket or the other. And, right. and in the United States, obviously there isn't universal health care. There's still millions of people who are uninsured and, uh, and then more who many more millions who are underinsured. And so the fact is they don't get, the same healthcare services that other citizens of the United States get. So there's a big difference. And that's, that's a, that's sort of a, a social approach to it. The, the Canadians decided that they wanted universal healthcare and everyone should have access to the same healthcare in the United States. People feel differently about it. And, uh, so back to the what you were saying about your primary care. So if you call your primary care for a regular thing and you want to go in, uh, you have something that you need to see them for, What? how long is the average? And it's not an urgent matter, but you do need to see them. How, right. how long is the average wait, would you say? Well, like any like any doctor, it's uh, you know if I if, let's say I call up uh, I call up my doctor and I I want to go in. This just recently happened. I wanted uh, I, I wanted to talk to him about a referral and maybe talk about a physical. Um, you know, I had I said when can you when can you see me? And two weeks after I. Uh, made the appointment I was there and, and if there's a cancellation you get a phone call or because he, he works out of a out of sort of a walk-in he, he, there's a bunch of residents who, but they also have a walk-in like I could have walked in and and seen him uh, the day of if I chose to sort of have him slip me in but not 
you know, not that long. No, that's yeah. the, I, I think that's I think that's a pretty reasonable wait. And I presume that if in that same pre-appointment conversation, if you said, "Hey, listen, I have you know some sort of urgent need, whatever that may be, that I need to see," I assume they'd move you up and they'd see you quicker. Uh, we've had that. Uh, our, our younger son was feeling that, and he said, "Come by whenever today, and and I'll just let them know." Uh, that Isaac's here, and I'll slip him in. Right. So, like, it, 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 it is not. It is not some. It, it's not different from down there in a lot of ways. I mean, if you have a doctor who's very popular down there, it may take you a couple of weeks to get in to see him. This, this, this is not. And not everybody. You, you have a choice of your of your caregivers. This is the thing that is a misconception where you're not told where and who you can go to. You have your you know, like in anywhere else, you choose your you choose your family doctor. You can go and shop doctors you can, through friends, whatever. Find out, oh, you know, I love Doctor X, and uh, if he has room and can take you on, there you go. And Not pre- different. And presumably, if you then go see Doctor X, and despite your conversations with friends and research, Doctor X doesn't turn out to be the correct physician for you, you can switch to Doctor Y. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it is. It is. There's no difference. The federal government does not tell me tell who I am able to uh, have my treatment from. Does, there, it has nothing to do with that. You have the you have the choice of anybody, anybody that that, that you want to go to. Um, uh, as per, like I was referred by my GP. Um, to a guy I didn't like, and I said, "Find me somebody else," and he did. Right, right, and and I and I think that's the other principle. One of the other principles of the Canadian healthcare system is that it's a it's a federally mandated program, um, which is instituted at the Providence level, but it is but the treatment, the physicians, etc. That's a private system, so. It's so as a private system, you have the things that go along with the private system. You have choice and you have um, uh, as to the doctor you can see. But when you go see your primary care physician for a routine matter, you go in for the visit for whatever it is. And then you're you leave. Do you owe any money after that visit? Do you have to pay anything? No. Okay. And then if you go see a specialist, if your uh, primary care um, gives you a referral to a specialist for whatever and uh and you go see that specialist and you get a treatment or a consultation or whatever do you pay anything for that no okay and then let's say that you or someone in your family or uh, another canadian citizen then either has a condition or they get into an accident or something and they have to go into the hospital and and stay in the hospital for a period of time um is there a cost when you leave the hospital that you owe no. Right. So it's so it's all paid for. It's all paid for. Um, <clears throat> you know, uh, there are things that may not be covered, like down in the U.S. And I mean, in terms of certain certain massage or whatever. It, like, you know, if I go to the dentist, even though I am insured, there there is a sort of um, it, 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 through my th- 
through my union, I have extended dental, say, through through the acting union, and and so what what ends up happening is they will either take payment, and then you will be reimbursed by the union in terms of the extended medical parameters, if that makes sense. Let's say I go into my dentist and want them to do a thing for teeth whitening, um, and they build me, you know, those the, the models, and so that would not be because it's cosmetic covered under it, and I would I would pay for that. Um, but my my my, under, my yeah, understanding though is that if you have if you write for you know braces and teeth whitening or even teeth cleaning that's not covered, but if you have an abscess or, or something like that, and you have to have an oral surgeon, that is covered. That's covered exactly. That that that's right. And and so orthodontics say you would still, if if you were fortunate enough to be like I am in a union that has extended, then that would be covered based on you know based on my earnings and what level of uh, of insurance I carried. Um, on top of that, and and how about Brian? How about uh, prescriptions? How do those work in Canada? You you I assume you go to your primary care or specialist or whomever they write you a prescription. So how do you get that filled, and what's the payment situation? Yeah, well, you you go you like like in the U.S. you go to a pharmacist or whatever, and uh, um, again through my union I have so all, uh, prices are mitigated. Um, or, or sometimes they are free. It depends on depends on what the um, prescription is, um, what what is the medication, what's it for. I mean, uh, sometimes you don't have to pay. You, you give your your um, your card, and sometimes it's covered in full. Sometimes it's not, and then you you pay the additional amount. But it's it. It's no different from filling it down in the in the states, really. So, what what's your general sort of experience with prescription medications for you or or your kids or whatever? Like, what I don't want to say an average, but what if it's not covered? I mean, what's is it usually like ten bucks? Is it fifty bucks? It's surprisingly low. I don't think we get hit with anything additionally. No, I, I, I think I think one big difference, however, is that the Canadian the Canadian federal government, as as a single entity, negotiates the cost of prescription drugs and and device and diagnostics with manufacturers as one unit. So they're able to they have a much more um, powerful bargaining position because they're representing the entire country to set prescription prices, whereas in the United States, uh, you know, the single biggest buyer of, of prescription drugs is um, Medicare, and Medicare is prohibited by law to negotiate. That's the first thing. And then the second thing, which is kind of crazy, and then the second thing is that it's a it's a fractured system in the United States by state, and not only by state, but by uh, different carriers within the states, so they have much less bargaining power to negotiate prescription drugs and that's why prescription drugs are more expensive in the United States. Canada has this literally the same medications 
uh, in the same bottles, the same counts, the same um, strengths, efficacy, etc., and they're 30 to 40% less in Canada because they've negotiated the price down. Right. Hey, Brian, let me ask you one more question here, which is, yeah. you know, you're, you're in a, a somewhat unique position anyway because you you have experienced both healthcare systems. You've experienced the uh, American, United States healthcare system, and and you've experienced the Canadian healthcare system. How, how, do, you, how do you think those sort of compare and, and, and which, if you, I don't know if it's black and white like this, but if you had to say which system you think is better or you prefer, what, what would you say? Well, I mean, for me, it's a no brainer. I mean, I, I am a, listen, I, I trusted the, the health of my kids and my, you know, we brought them up here. Um, and he was still pregnant with Isaac. He, he was, well, he was, I take that back. He was born in March. We moved up here at when he had three months old, and uh, and Evan was two years and nine months or whatever. So, um, I, I I choose. Listen, I, I was very fortunate down in the United States when I lived there. Uh, my health care was incredible through through um, growing up as a kid. My family, because my father was employed. Uh, and as a, an actor who made a living down there, uh, my kids, we had really solid health care. And, and so it's fantastic. The, but the problem, problem falls and, and, you know, not everybody is as blessed as I am down there um, or, or you are. And so the question is, are we willing to as a population, pay for universality so that everybody is entitled to the same. And up here, um, I don't feel like, uh, listen, there, there, there is, when it comes to the odd scrapes and, you know, that, like, say, that hernia thing, I, I, that's the perfect sort of analogy for it, you know, I, in terms of time frame. It's really all it is. I don't find the quality of healthcare any different. I think that there are fantastic doctors up here and incredible surgeons up here and and they're you know, they they run the gamut of uh, of ability as they do down in the United States. The question it has always been accessibility, right? And uh and for me, who had sort of top-notch healthcare down there, um, I don't see a huge difference, and certainly not one. Uh, I don't see a difference that I would not be willing to pay for, if you know what I mean. Like I'm, I'm willing happily to have my tax dollars go. Um, I think it's my job as a as a as a Canadian to help provide for people who have less um, with my tax money uh, and the fact that I know where it's going um, I, I mean I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that you know I, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm sad for, for my, my country part of me is very much American um, and I'm, I'm 
I'm I'm disturbed and distressed by what's happening down there as well, and uh, you know, have sort of hit critical mass with it all. Do you know what I mean? I like every day it's something else. Every day it's something else. Yeah. Um, I I'm not ashamed to stand by how I feel and my criticism of my country and my love for my country. So that's what it's like to live under the Canadian healthcare system. A system where all citizens have health care without exception, where what you pay for health care is based on your income, where you have choice in the doctor you have, where when you visit your general practitioner, a specialist, or the hospital, you pay nothing because you have already paid into the system. And I want to thank Brian for taking the time to walk us through his personal experience and feelings about the Canadian healthcare system from the perspective of an American with dual citizenship living in Canada. But what do the numbers tell us about the Canadian system versus the U.S. system? Well, the simple fact is that the United States spends much more money on healthcare than Canada, on both a per capita basis and as a percent of GDP. Recent statistics show that per capita spending for healthcare in Canada is $3,678 U.S. dollars, and in the United States, GDP spending for healthcare is 82% more at $6,714. The U.S. spends 15.3% of GDP on healthcare, Canada spends about 10%. So if the U.S. spends more on healthcare for its citizens, does it get better results? Well, that is an extremely difficult question to answer because there are many factors that affect health outcomes. But having said that, some figures do stand out. Life expectancy for Canadians is 80.3 years compared to 78.6 years for residents in the United States. The infant mortality rate is 23% higher in the U.S. versus Canada at 6.1 deaths per thousand versus 4.9 deaths per thousand, respectively. And those are some of the statistics of the Canadian healthcare system. And here are the thoughts of Dr. Danielle Martin, Vice President at Toronto Women's College Hospital, a healthcare administrator in Canada, and an associate professor at the University of Toronto. I must say I'm very grateful uh, that so many Americans are interested in learning about the experience of your Canadian neighbours under our single-payer healthcare system, which we also call Medicare. As a practicing doctor, a hospital administrator, and a citizen, I am so proud to be part of a system where access to doctor and hospital services is truly based on need, not ability to pay. And I'm not the only one. In public polls, 94% of Canadians say that our healthcare system is a source of personal and collective pride, even more than ice hockey. (laughs) Single-payer healthcare is a symbol to us of what it truly means to be Canadian, that we take care of each other. So as the politicians in Washington, D.C. continue to debate healthcare, maybe it's time that we take a fresh look at the system in the U.S. Maybe it's time that we look at other systems around the world, learn from them, reject the things that don't work, embrace the things that do work, and evaluate if those successes can be extrapolated to the United States. Because in the end, the politicians in Washington, D.C. work for us. We elected them. We put them there. 
and they owe the American people their best efforts at delivering quality health care at the lowest cost possible to all Americans. Talk soon.